Greetings and welcome to another hour of discernment on December 22nd, 2016. This is part two of uh, a series that I'm, I'm, I'm doing on establishing Zionist churches. That's chapter 27 of Ed Henry's book. I, it's a real, in, uh, it's a real informative, historical uh, document on how dispensational futurism came about, and uh, we uh, we got into it yesterday. And uh, I'm I'm you know one thing that came to me uh, after sleeping on this for 48 hours. I realized that, you know, the dispensational futurism equals Zionist theology. See, you couldn't have Zionism without dispensational futurism. And so this is where we've got this, the state, the 1948 Israel. And I also want to bring to your attention a book that I have uh, for more reference is uh, Who is Israel? Yesterday, Today, and Forever. It's written by Matt First, and you spell his last name F-U-R-S-E. But uh, understand, understanding Israel, it's like uh, putting, the, putting the, uh, the cart in front of the horse. You have to understand dispensational futurism before Zionism, you get the picture of Zionism. And Zionism has infected all our seminaries and Bible colleges. And uh, we, uh, we live in a Zionist nation. You know, that, uh, the, that's the, uh, in Donald J. Trump is, like I said yesterday, uh, he is actually came right out and said that Israel is our best ally. So Zionism is a very, very important part of what is going on in the world today. And, uh, and uh, so, so, so in, this, in this chapter, I just, want to, uh, I just want to review something in our minds here. Um, refresh, you know, a little bit of history. I want, to, I want to read three paragraphs on the first page of the book. He says, Tens of millions of Christians were executed by the Roman Catholic Church during the Dark Ages because... Those brave witnesses for Christ believed that the Pope was the Antichrist. In fact, one of the foundational principles of Protestant Reformation was that the Pope is the Antichrist. This view is amply supported by the Holy Scriptures. The belief that the Pope is the Antichrist was virtually unanimous belief among Protestant denominations. In fact, the Westminster Confession of Faith the Church of England, states, quote, There is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ, nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head of, but is that Antichrist, that man of sin and the son of perdition that exalts himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God. Other Protestant confessions of faith identify the Pope as the Antichrist, including but not limited to the Moreland Confession of 1508 and 1535, the Waldeans, and the Helvetic Confession of 1536 in Switzerland. Today, those that hold such a belief are in the minority. In fact, nowadays it is viewed as radical and uncharitable for a Christian to say that the Pope is the Antichrist. How did the transformation take place among the Protestant denominations? Now that is a real, that this is what this chapter of this book is about. Matter of fact, you know, it's about the, the whole book. It's the the title of the book is Solving the Mystery of Babylon the Great. So how did such transformation take place among the Protestant denominations? I'm going to read one more paragraph before we get into part two uh, from yesterday. He says, 
The change in the position of the protesting denominations towards Rome was the direct result of a concerted campaign by the agents of the Roman Catholic Church. One of the methods used by the Roman Catholic theologians was to relegate much of the book of Revelations to some future time. In 1590, a Roman Catholic Jesuit priest, Francisco Ribera, in his 500-page commentary on the book of Revelation, placed the events of most of the book of Revelation in a period in the future just prior to the end of the world. He claimed that the Antichrist would be an individual who would not be manifested until very near the end of the world. He wrote that the Antichrist would rebuild Jerusalem, abolish Christianity, deny Christ, persecute the church, and dominate the world for three and a half years. And we know what this caused. This was the seed of dispensational futurism. To, to take the eye off the Antichrist and put it in a future date. Now, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, back up just a little bit. and We're going to start off where we left off yesterday. But I'm, to get a little bit of continuity, I'm going to go back just a... Because uh, uh, he, he, he's talking... Uh, uh, Ed Henry is talking about the ordinances. And you can go back and... and and, and you're going to have to fit this in so, so it flows. But I'm going to start <clears throat> on, pay, on the, on the I, well, I should tell you just exactly what page I'm going to start on. Okay, we're going to, we're going to start on page 258, chapter 27, Solving the Mystery of Babylon the Great, because I want to, State, in other words, you can you can go to my website, click on the Solving Mystery Babylon, and on Ed's webpage, this book is on the internet. It can be read on the internet <clears throat> if you wanted to read along. So it's on page 258. I'm going to start down to th- th- three quarters of the way down the page. <clears throat> Jesus blotted out the ordinances that were against us and nailed them to the cross. The law was only a shadow of Christ. He is the fulfillment of the law. Having fulfilled the law, Christ will not reinstate it. <clears throat> this is Galatians uh, chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh... Hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of the ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took out the, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink, or in respect of a holy day, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. That's Colossians 2:13-17. The law of God was added after the promise given to Abraham. The law did not void the promise of God given to Abraham. The blessings of Abraham flow to all who believe in Jesus Christ. All who believe in Jesus are heirs of the promise given to Abraham. Galatians 3, verses 23 to 29. That is, through faith in Christ, one becomes the spiritual seed of Abraham. Obedience to God is the result of salvation, not the cause of it. Let me read that statement again. Obedience to God, obedience to God is the result of salvation not the cause of it. Just as with Abraham, who believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness, so too all others who believe God, it is also accounted unto them as righteousness. <clears throat> this is Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 22. Even as Abraham believed God, 
and it was accounted for him for righteousness. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. For as many as are of the of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is every one that continueth, not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them, but that no man is justified by the law of the sight of God. It is evident, for the just shall live by faith, and the law is not of faith, but the man that does them shall live in them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men. Though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disnulleth or addeth thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. The law, which was four hundred and thirty years after, cannot disannul, that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of a promise. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of a promise. But God give it to Abraham by promise. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of the mediator. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promises by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. Galatians 3 verses 6 through 22. All the law and the prophets are summarized in two commandments. Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love thy Lord of thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is, is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbors as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Matthew 22, verses 36 to 40. And I just, the last sentence. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. <clears throat> Jesus set us free by fulfilling the requirements of the law. That's Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, and John 8, verse 32. Ephesians 2, 15, and Colossians chapter 2, 14. Because we are all set free does not mean we are free to sin. He gave, it, he gave us a new heart so that we are free to obey the law of God, which otherwise have been an impossibility. We are commanded to love one another and love God upon those two commandments hang all the requirements of the law. Matthew chapter 22 verses 36 to 40. Quote, For brethren, for brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love to serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt 
Love thy neighbor as thyself. The royal law of God is that we should love our neighbors as we love ourselves. James 2, chapter 2, verse 6. In fact, Jesus gave us a new commandment that goes further and tells us uh, tells us to what degree we are to love one another. Our obedience to the new commandment does not earn salvation, but our obedience is a sign that we are his disciples. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have loved one to another. That's John chapter 13, verses 34 to 35. Righteousness is imputed to those who believe it is not earned. The deeds of the law will never earn salvation. Salvation is a gift of God through faith in in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 10. I'm going to read now Romans. Chapter 3, verses 20 to 31. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall be no flesh be justified in the sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all men that believe. For there is is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a <clears throat> prohibition through the faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past, through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, His righteousness that he might be just and the justified justifier of him which believe in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he... Th- is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not just? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, seeing it as one God, which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. Romans. Chapter 3, verses 20 to 31. The true Jews are those that accept their Messiah, Jesus. The kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. It is not the kingdom based on race or tribe. Those who are chosen by God to believe in Jesus Christ are the spiritual Israel of God. This is going to read Romans chapter 9, verses 6 and 8. Now, as through the word of God have taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel, neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall they seed be called. That is, they which are of the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of promise are counted for the seed. <clears throat> now, I'm going to read Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Keeping commandments or being being born into a certain tribe or nation is not relevant to one's entrance into God's kingdom. God's kingdom is made of 
made up of those whom he has chosen by his grace. Romans chapter 9 verse 16. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Therefore hast the mercy on him, therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will be hardened? That's Romans 9 verses 18. God has not cast away Israel. His Israel is made up of those whom he foreknew before his foundation of the world, who would believe in Jesus unto salvation. Therefore, all Israel shall be saved. God has not cast away his people, which he foreknew. Romans chapter 11, verse 2. And, And so, all Israel shall be saved. And all Israel shall be saved. And that's Romans chapter 11, verse 26. Part and parcel, part and parcel of the belief in the renewed millennium sacrifices is the belief that there will be a rebuilding of the Jewish temple. Many believe that the supposed future temple will be rebuilt at the location of what is now known as the Wailing Wall. They believe that the Wailing Wall is a remnant of the Western Wall from the Old Temple. In fact, the Wailing Wall is not the Western Wall from the ancient Jewish Temple, but in fact is the Western Wall of the Roman Fort Antonia. Fort Antonia was a permanent Roman fort at the time of Jesus. Fort Antonio was 800 feet north of the temple and the southern wall of the fort was connected to the northern wall of the temple by double columns. Jesus made it clear that the temple would be destroyed so thoroughly there will be not there quote there will not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 24 verses 1 and 2 <clears throat> the Jews are all too happy to deceive the world into believing that Jesus was wrong. In fact, the prophecy of Jesus was fulfilled perfectly. The temple was completely destroyed down to the last stone. The remains that are left standing today are the remains of Fort Antonio, not the temple. The Dome of the Rock is not as it is supposed to Suppose the place where Muhammad ascended into heaven. The Dome of the Rock is a pagan Islamic shrine built over <clears throat> over the Roman Praetorium, which was where Pilate sentenced Jesus. The Praetorium was inside Fort Antonio, not the Jewish temple. Just as Christ repeated throughout his New Testament, so I will repeat. God has abolished the distinction between Jew and Gentile. Romans chapter 3, verses 28 to 30. His church has become one spiritual temple and a household of God, with Christ being the chief cornerstone. There is no more need for a physical temple, which was merely a shadow of the greater spiritual temple, his church. I'm going to read now Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 and 22. For he is our peace, who hath made one, and hath broken down the middle wall of the partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enemy, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, For to make himself of twain one man, so making peace, and and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enemy thereby, and and came and preached peace to you, which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. 
Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all building fitly framed together growth into the holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye all are built together for the habitation of God through the Spirit. That was the end of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 to 22. Why would the Catholic Church want to deceive the world to follow after the Jewish fable of reinstitution of the temple sacrifices? We must look to Scripture to find the answer. In 2 Thessalonians chapter, chapter 2, verses 1 and 4, God states that the man of sin, the Antichrist, will exalt himself above all that is called God and sit in the temple of God and claim to be God. <clears throat> this is Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and 4. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as the day of the Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first. And the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself, above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he is God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. End of the quote. What is the temple of God? Each saved Christian individually and all saved Christians corporately make up the temple of God. Know ye... Not that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, and which temple ye are? 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. What? This is, this is uh, Corinthians 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 20. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of Holy Spirit, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your, your, your own? For you are bought with a price, therefore glorify God into your, your body and in your spirit, which are God's. In, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21 in whom all the building fitly framed together growth unto an holy temple in the Lord. The Pope has claimed the authority and position of God Almighty. He claims to be the God who rules the universe, the universal church of God. And we also know what the word universal means. It means Catholic. That is, he claims to rule as God in the temple of God the church this is a quote from the bull sanctum november 18 1302 <clears throat> the roman pontiff judges all men but is judged by no one we declare assert define and pronounce to be the subject of the Roman pontiff to every human creature altogether necessary for salvation. That which was spoken of Christ, thou hast subdued all things under his feet, may well seem verified in me. I have the authority of the King of kings. I am all in all and above all, so that God himself and I, the vicar of God, have but one consistentory, and I am able to do almost all that God can do. What, therefore, can you make of me but God? And Pope Leo, Pope Leo the Thirteenth, said, "We hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty." 
Is there any doubt who the Antichrist is? In order to conceal the fact that the Pope fulfills the prophecy in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and 4 of the Antichrist sitting in the temple of God, the Pope had his minions, the Jesuits, promote the Millennium Temple fable so that the deceived will be looking for the Antichrist in the distant future and not see the papal Antichrist right beneath their noses. Those that accept this Millennium Temple, however, have rejected righteousness by the faith in Jesus Christ and instead teach a rebuilding of the physical temple where righteousness will be by the law. That is the heart and belief of the Zionist movement. The Zionist Catholic Millennium Doctrine is a rejection of Christ the chief cornerstone of the spiritual temple of God. The rebuilding of the physical temple with a physical stone is a rejection of the rock of salvation, Jesus Christ. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the laws of righteousness. Wherefore, because they sought it not by faith, but as if it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Romans chapter 9, verses 31 and 33. Jesus Christ is the stone that has been rejected by the builders of this false religion. To them he is a rock of offense upon whom they will stumble to the ultimate demise. <clears throat> Quote, for if they which are of the law be hares, faith is made void and the promise made of non-effect. Romans chapter 4, verses 14. Jesus is the rock of salvation. Psalms 62, verse 6. Christians are spiritual stones that are incorporated into Christ Jesus to make a holy temple of the Lord. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verses 2 to 9. A new, as newborn babies desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may be grow thereby, if so be ye have last tasted, the Lord is gracious. Let me start that again. As newborn babies desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. If so, be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Ye also, as lovely stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore, also, it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I say in Zion, a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, which believe he is precious, but unto them which is be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the name is made, the head of the corner, and of a stone of stumbling, and of a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praise of him who hath called you out of the darkness into the marvelous light. That was First Peter chapter 2, verses 2 and 9. The Pope is the usurper who is against Christ and claims to take the place of Christ in his temple. That's the church. Let me say that again. The Pope is a usurper who is against Christ and claims to take the place of Christ in his temple. 
The Spanish edition of Lacunza's book became so popular in England that an English version was published. The job of translating the English version was performed by Edward Irving. He completed the translation in 1826, but the book was not published until 1827. In 1830, a journal titled The Morning Watch, published by Irving and his followers, refined the futurist interpretation and presented a theory that is popular in Protestant denominations today known as the pre-tribulation rapture. Irving was placed on trial by the Presbyterian Church in 1832 for permitting for permitting unauthorized utterances of tongues and prophecies in his London church. He was censured and officially removed as pastor. He then formed the Catholic Apostolic Church. In 1830, Irving wrote a tract wherein he suggested Jesus Christ possessed a fallen human nature. In 1833, he was tried for heresy and deposed deposed from the ministry. Irving died on December 7, 1834 at the age of 42. Robert Baxter, an associate of Edward Irving, wrote of his experience in Irving's church. Irving would often have meetings that involved subjective spiritual manifestations such as speaking in tongues that purportedly revealed new doctrines and predicted future events. Baxter himself was the source of a variant of Irving's pre-tribulation rapture teaching. Baxter spontaneously, by utter uttering a doctrine that involved a mid-tribulation rapture, Baxter had little control over his manifestations of tongues, that in some instances he found it necessary to stuff a handkerchief in his mouth so as not to disturb his household. Baxter was mercifully delivered from this power, which he identified as the power of Satan. Baxter later renounced his own utterances and warned of the cunning craftiness of of, of Satan, who was able to to appear as an angel of light in order to deceive the unaware as second corinthians see second corinthians chapter 11 verses 14 and 15 dispensationalism dispensationalists who believe in pre-tribulation rapture try to disassociate the pre-tribulation rapture doctrine from edward irving's because of his taunted reputation and his connection with the translations of the Lacunza book. They prefer, rather, to attribute the pre-tribulation rapture origin to John Nelsey Darby. Those that ascribe to the pre-tribulation rapture theory hold that there will be a resurrection of the saints seven years prior to the return of Jesus Christ. But they call it a rapture in order to distinguish it from the resurrection that it is so clearly prophesied in the Holy Bible, this rapture of saints is supposed to be the catalyst for the entry of the Antichrist on the world scene. The appearance of the Antichrist is supposed to take place during a seven-year tribulation period following the rapture of the saints, hence the term pre-tribulation rapture. Darby was very familiar with Lacunzi's book and wrote about it in 1829, just two years after the publication of Lacunzi's book in English. You see, it, this, what we see growing today, the growth of Zionists in the churches today, this is the seed of it. And I, you know, brothers and sisters, I know people out there that believe in this 1948 Israel and it's like they've been programmed all you have to do is go back and read a little history and this is what Ed is bringing forth right here this is an encyclopedia solving mystery Babylon now back to Ed's book Irving and Lacunzi constructed a theory and then sought 
biblical support for the theory. Rather than reading the Bible for what it says, the so-called biblical scholars who followed Irving and Lacunza adopted their eschatology doctrine of a pre-tribulation resurrection. But they used the unbiblical term rapture instead of resurrection. The term rapture is not found anywhere in the Holy Scriptures. It is, in fact, a, 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 dere, a derivation. Excuse me. In the fact of of the of the derivation of the Latin raptus. Excuse me. That's the Latin word is raptus. Is a word that can be found in some of the passages in the Latin translation of the Bible, which is known as the Latin Vulgate. Raptus is a mistranslation of the Greek word harposo, which literally means caught up. See Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 in the Latin Vulgate. Many people believe that the rapture is synonymous with the resurrection, but that is not true. While rapture does not include the idea of being taken away, it is a very different from the resurrection promised by Jesus. Rapture means the act of seizing and carrying off as a prey or plunder. The act of carrying off a woman. Rape. The root word for the rapture is rap, which means rape. <clears throat> Abduction or ravishing. The act of power of carrying forcibly away. Ravish means to seize and carry away by violence. To have carnal knowledge with a woman by force and against her consent. Both rapture and rape share the same Latin root word with raptus. Raptus means a carrying off and an abduction rape. The Holy Scripture describes the church as the chaste bride of Christ who is with Christ at the wedding supper of the Lamb. Uh, the wedding supper of the Lamb will take place at the resurrection of the saints when this world ends. By using the term rapture, these scholars are blasphemingly describing that holy and glorious resurrection of the church as a rape. <clears throat> John Bray alleged that Morgan Edwards was the first Protestant to write about pre-tribulation rapture. Edward's book in 1788 was published two years before Lacunzas finished his unpublished draft manuscript of his book. However, close examination of Edward's book raised a real issue about whether Edward's book was truly about a pre-tribulation rapture. It is difficult to view Edward's writings as promoting a pre-tribulation rapture since according, since according to McPherson, Edwards has a historist. Edwards was a historist who viewed the papacy as the seat of the Antichrist. That being the case, how could his writings be viewed to support the position of the Antichrist is yet to be revealed at some time after a future rapture. Dave McPherson makes a convincing case which he, which he supports by good textual evidence that, in fact, Edwards did not write about the pre-tribulation rapture. <clears throat> in any event, there is no evidence that the modern pre-tribulation rapture teaching in the pro Protestant churches is traceable to Edwards. But Pearson also disputes whether Kunzer wrote about a pre-tribulation rapture. The, the significance of Lacunza, however, is that the fact that he wrote of a future Antichrist and that Jewish animal sacrifices would be reinstated in conjunction with the Eucharist of the, of the Catholic Church. And Ed has got a whole chapter in his book that the Mass comes from, comes from Judaism. The, the fact of his eschatology was, no, was to conceal the Antichrist sitting in the Vatican and raise the Jews to the position of preeminence. Boy, do we see that today. The historical record reveals 
a rapture trail leading directly to Lacunzi. <clears throat> in in uh, in uh, Juan Josephat Ben Harris, uh, that's you know certainly there were different there were differences as the unscriptural rapture theory evolved, but those differences do not let Lacunzi off the hook. All one needs to do to read the preface to the 2000 reprint of Lacunzi's book to understand the significance of the book to the Catholic and Zionist cause. Notice what he said here when he's writing. The significance of the book to the Catholic and Zionist cause. <clears throat> the preface states Lacunzi's contribute 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 contribution to present-day evangelism evangelicalism was to reassert the restoration of the Jews in the end times the twofold coming of the Lord the millennial reign while Jonathan Tillen in preface describes Lacunza's view as a post-tribulational the key is that he also describes Lacunza as a futurist. That is, Lacunza puts the Antichrist in the future period and takes the eye off the Christians, off the Vatican. The dedication by Irving is even more revealing, for it tells us what is the real force behind the promotion of the pre-tribulation rapture through of Lacunza's book. <clears throat> Irving, in his dedication to the book, states that he translated the book because of, it demonstrates the erroneousness of the almost universal opinion that Christ will not come until the end of the millennium. Irving clearly viewed Lacunza as a pre-millennialist. Pre, pre Apparently, it was the foundation for his own pre-millennial, pre-tribulation, rapture doctrine which he wrote of only four years later forgive me for not pronouncing millennium right but if you uh, you know as one thing I will say here uh, myself you see I, I was raised a, in, a, in a Lutheran church and uh, got very little of the Bible but I wasn't taught all this false doctrine but when you take somebody that's been 15, 20 years in an assembly of God or a Pentecostal church, I mean, they have had, they have to unlearn all this stuff. I've been blessed where I didn't have to unlearn it. I have a hard time pronouncing all this false doctrine. But anyway, so I'm going to, I'm going to read, uh, finish this page here and, uh, and then we're going to close for the day. In reading Lacunza's book, it is clear that he was of the view that there will be several resurrections. <clears throat> Lacunza stated that St. Paul, who doubtless knew better, gives us clear, clearly to understand that there will be time over and above, because between the resurrection of the saints and the end of the... He places great events which require time and no little of it to bring them about. What are these events between the resurrection of the saints and the end? Could this be the germ that Irving later, Irving latched onto to come up with the, his theory and later became known as the pre-tribulation rapture? Another point made by Lacunza is, quote, that the ev evacuation of all rule, authority, and power with everything else which we read in the text, must come to pass, not before, but after the resurrection of the saints who are Christ, consequently after the coming of Christ. Again, we have the evacuation of all rule. Quote, we have the quote, evacuation of all rule, authority, and power after the first resurrection. Could that be the precursor of... Irving's tribulation period. Lacunza further states, unless 
quote, unless you, you would consent to use the utmost violence, you must allow that it is here manifestly spoken of persons alive and sojourning, of whom, of whom, when the Lord shall come, some shall be lifted up on high, and others not. Some shall be taken, because they shall be worthy of this assumption, and others not worthy are therefore left. End of quote. Could that be the basis of Irving's doctrine, which later became known as the rapture? Lacunzi concludes, quote, The instruments of documents which we have presented in this dissertation, dis- dis- if they be seriously considered and combined with one another, appear more than sufficient to prove that God hath promised in his word to raise many other saints besides those already raised. Before the general resurrection, consequently, the idea of the resurrection of the flesh in one company and at one time, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, is an idea which is so far from being just that it appeared absolutely indefensible. You know, that was a quote from Lacunes. And it's even hard to read this. It doesn't flow. You know, and, you know, people are taken by, you know, taken over by this, you know, you know, it seems like today people, they walk into a church and take their coat off and check their, their in, in their, in, and they leave their brain, their Bible and brains on the outside. So with that, you know, uh, we're going to, we're going to, st- we, we stopped on page 267, 267, and we'll continue on part three uh, tomorrow uh, on the next broadcast. I don't know just when it is, you know, uh, but it's in the, I, I appreciate uh, uh, the fellowship that I do get from, the, I mean, uh, one thing I, I found out, if you have a strong, if you have a big following, <laughs> you got to check yourself. So anyway, I, I appreciate the few people that listen, and I think you'll really appreciate this book, uh, you know, Tracking the Beast from the Synagogue to the Vatican, Solving the Mystery of Babylon the Great. It's an encyclopedia on Mystery Babylon by Edward Henry. I put the, it's, you know, Ed Henry doesn't call it an encyclopedia, but I do. Okay. But anyway, thanks, and we'll, God bless, and we'll see you tomorrow. Bye for now.